We're turning to Acts chapter 12 today, verses 1 through 17. Acts chapter 12, an important moment in the life of the church, of the early church. Again, another moment where it seems like perhaps their whole mission will, will fall apart as we read of the martyrdom, the second martyrdom in that church with James. He's the, um, the only of the, the original 12 disciples that we have recorded for us, the, the way in which he was martyred. Uh, We have the execution of James, but then the escape of Peter, and then we will consider thirdly today as well, the expectation of the church and what it means uh, to pray earnestly for God's will to be done. Acts chapter 12, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping Between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Well, we look back to verses 1 and 2, and we see uh, the, the opening of this chapter is quite shocking. Uh, Herod, the king, is introduced here. This is Herod. Uh, who is normally known as Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, probably just Agrippa. Uh, I believe Peter wants us, or or Luke wants us, though, to when we read Herod, to think of his uncle, uh, his uncle, uh, Herod, who was the one who murdered John the Baptist and uh, oversaw the um, trial of Jesus. Or maybe he wants us to think of this Herod's grandfather, Herod the Great, who 
tried to put to death baby Jesus. Uh, it's a whole family of, of leaders uh, who are really marked by the fact that they hate the Christ. And they want to see him destroyed. Um, and, and so what, what's happening to Peter is his sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Just as Herod the Great and then Herod Antipas and now Herod Agrippa. They all are part of this program to try to destroy Christ and, and his people and the work of the church. A violent family, we read, violent hands were laid by Herod on some who belonged to the church. And we barely got in our, our bearings before we read that he's killed James. Just like that. Uh, verse 2. A terse, half-sentence description to describe the death of one of the most influential disciples. This is James of, of James and John and, and Peter. That, that trio, the inner ring of, of disciples. And, and yet, just like that, he's written off. He's gone. And it doesn't seem right, does it? Somebody like James, someone so influential somebody so critical to the mission of the church, somebody who had so much to offer, how could God take him? Didn't he have much more to do for the work of the church? The, these would undoubtedly be the questions that, that the early church was wrestling with as they hear the report that James has been executed. Things are just getting started, God. We, we need our leaders. What are we to do if James now has been killed? makes me think of the story of a missionary named John Williams. He was born near London back in the 1790s, and he grew up uh, to become a well-respected missionary to the Pacific, delivering the gospel to places like Tahiti and uh, New Guinea, Samoa, uh, the, the Cook Islands. In 1839, Williams set out on a trip to a new place, uh, the New Hebrides Islands, uh, now known as Vanuata. He landed on shore in November 1839, and within minutes of stepping off the boat, he was killed by the natives there and promptly eaten by them on the beach, not even given a, a moment to witness for the sake of Christ. And the church wrestled with this question, was John Williams not important? Could God not have used him to further Christ's kingdom? Why would he take him like this? These are the questions running through the minds of believers in Jerusalem. The martyrdom of James was a test for the early church's faith, wasn't it? Uh, it was meant to shake them to their core. Herod knew what he was doing. He was intentionally going after the leaders of the church because he knew that if the leaders were taken out, well, then their followers would, would give up. Um, what, what's a soldier without a, his fearless leader? So the death of James would have brought a real trial to the church's faith in God's work. Could they continue now that James had been executed? And of course, what they had to remember was that if the very, uh, the, the, the very organization, if we want to call it that, the, the body of the church itself, if the church itself was established, was constituted in the death of Christ himself, then it wouldn't be canceled in the death of one of his servants. It's a funny thing how God uses death for his purposes. But in all this, we have a lesson in trusting God's sovereignty. Have, have you been there before where, where you've had an experience where something has gone entirely wrong, terribly wrong, according to your plan? 
And you're thinking, there's no way to get out of it. You're beginning to panic and fret. How could things ever work out? We need to trust, don't we, brothers and sisters? We need to submit to God's sovereignty and trust that He is in control. That He is powerful command over all things, even when we don't understand it. But that's hard when things go, go wrong. We get angry. We doubt. We doubt that God knows what He's doing. And so this question... Why, why didn't God save James? It is translated into our own lives as questions like this. Perhaps you've asked some of them. Why, why didn't God spare my spouse from that diagnosis? Why did God let me get cancer or my mother dementia? Why is God letting this person, this, this wicked person succeed and, and letting the righteous fail? Have you ever been in a grim situation like that where you, you can't seem to, to come up with an answer why God would be allowing certain things to take place? But we need to remember, even in the grimmest of situations, God is working out his grace. Paul Tripp says it like this, God will take you to where you did not intend to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And there are moments where we're going through difficulty and we're crying out, where is the grace of God? And yet we are getting it. There's the grace in the trial. He calls this the theology of uncomfortable grace. Trip goes on. If you're God's child and you're going through difficulty, you must not name that difficulty as a sign of God's unfaithfulness or inattention. You must never bring God into the court of your judgment and question his faithfulness and love Because those difficulties are a sure sign of the zeal of his faithfulness and love. Because we know that our sanctification comes through suffering. This is how the dross is melted away. This is how the gold is refined. This is how we receive the grace of God. Oftentimes, it is through a grim situation. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. How could that be? A sign of God's faithfulness. Sometimes we don't have the answer. Maybe Luke gives us the account of the death of James in such a kind of a terse way, an abrupt way, to implicitly teach us that there's something so ordinary to death in whatever form it comes that it's not really worth commenting on extensively. Uh, We're all going to die. All of our ministry efforts will end in our death. And here is a shocker for for us, I think, in our our self-righteousness, in our pride. But here's the, the reality. We are all expendable. God doesn't need any of us to do his plan to accomplish his mission. The ministry of the church, and that that is the church as a whole, but even particular congregations are are never dependent on one individual or a group of individuals. And we do better work for God when we remember that. That it's his plan, and he always provides the means for it to succeed. It never fails. Uh, Count Zinzendorf is credited with the aphorism that our calling in life As Christians, especially for ministers, this was his saying is, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. 
That's it. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. I'm sure James would have agreed with that assessment. And it certainly appears that Peter would have too, if we consider his calm handling of what takes place next. It seems that he's ready to die and be forgotten. Let's look at the second portion of this story with Peter's escape. What's taking place here? Well, Herod, he's insecure at the the rising popularity of this group called Christians. And so he puts James uh, to the death and he sees how well received that is from uh, the Jewish folks. And so he thinks, well, I'll do this all over again with Peter. But that's Passover. So he puts him in prison until the end of that eight-day feast. Peter is likely being held in what was known as the Fortress of Antonia. It's this tower that that Herod uh, the Great built in 19 BC that attached itself to the corner of the temple. It was the highest point in Jerusalem. It housed 600 soldiers. And and from that point, you could look over all the city, but most importantly, you could look into the temple. And it was was kind of Herod's way of making sure he knew what was going on without... Uh, you know, getting a rise out of the Jewish people from being in the temple proper as Gentiles. And so they have this fortress um, that that, uh, doubled as a prison as well. So with these 600 soldiers, uh, that's in addition to the soldiers that are guarding Peter here 24-7. Notice the kind of guard that he's under. Uh, Verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains. The, the idea seems to be that he's, he's tied to these two soldiers. And then there's sentries before the door guarding the prison. And as we continue to trace the events of the story, we, we learn that he's actually behind three gates. There's the opening gate, the iron gate that opens of its own accord. That's the one that gets out to the city. But then inside that, there's another gate. And then there's his prison cell. These are all the ones that Peter has to make his way through as... If he were to ever attempt an escape and you wonder, what was Peter's crime? Man, what, what kind of threat must he have posed to, to the people of Jerusalem or to, the, uh, uh, to the, the citizens under Herod for him to be tied to, to soldiers and have sentries posted at the door and be behind three gates? What was his crime? You know his crime. He talked about Jesus. He talked about Jesus. We think, wow, overkill, right, Herod? Clearly he's insecure. And yet, what do we learn here, friends? We learn that to those who hate Christ, no matter how powerful they may be, and Herod was a very powerful person. He had had all of these soldiers at his disposal in one sense. He, He shouldn't have felt threatened at all by anybody. And yet, if you hate Christ, there is no greater threat than the humblest Christian who likes to talk about him. And so, they lock him up and they throw away the key. Things are looking grim for Peter. Seven days and nights go by completely uneventful. No sign of a rescue. No change in the king's heart. But on that final night, on the eve of his public execution, when Herod was about to bring him out, verse 6, what happens? Verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. It's divine intervention. It's a rescue. And um, what plays out is maybe something that, that you've actually experienced if you have teenagers in the home, right? The angel can't get Peter to wake up. He has to slap him. Get up! It's time to wake up. That is how soundly Peter is asleep. The eve of his execution. Peter proceeds to follow the angel. 
get up, dress yourself, put on your sandals. He does so. And, and then the angel says, no, no, you didn't really dress yourself because you need to wrap your cloak around you. Peter wasn't ready to be outside. He didn't realize, no, we're, we're leaving this place. You need to put on your coat. We're going out. And Peter follows him. They go past gate one and centuries past gate two and centuries. Lastly, out that iron gate that leads to the city. It's only then when Peter is safely outside in the fresh air that he realizes that what happened wasn't a dream. It wasn't a vision. It was a real rescue where, where heaven sent a special agent to come. And to save him. We have to ask this question though. How was it that Peter was so calm through the whole ordeal? It's one thing to write off uh, his um, confusion with sleepiness. But how was he so fast asleep on the eve of his death in the first place? And I think we can uh, look away from Luke's account to what Peter says himself. Turn with me to First Peter in chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, that's Hebrews, James, and look what he says beginning in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter did not just write these words, he lived them, friends. He had completely cast all of his anxieties onto the Lord in his moment of despair or trial or desperation. He humbled himself realizing that everything was in God's control. And he rested under that mighty hand of God and he slept. And he slept so well that even the appearance of an angel with all that blinding light couldn't wake him. He had to be slapped awake. We know that one of the first things to go when we're anxious or when we're stressful is sleep. We don't sleep well the, the, the eve of big events, good or bad. Uh, but certainly when we have questions that are coursing through our brain, we might as well have you know, been drinking Mountain Dew um, right before bed. seems like nothing can can get us to go to sleep if we're worried about that meeting we have, uh, that, that confrontation we need to have with, a, uh, with somebody at work, or, or um, we're, we're worried about, oh, there can be all kinds of things, we're worried about the, the results of the election that are going to come in in the morning, we're, we're fretting over finances, or what are we going to do about the broken car, and the list can go on. Yet Peter, only hours away from his humiliating public execution, sleeps. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God gives to his beloved sleep. It's a gift. And even in those nights when we would toss and turn, the gift is right there. We just need to open it with faith and trust in God, and he will give us sleep. With Peter's situation in mind, perhaps we'll now view what it means to cast our anxieties on God with a renewed perspective. And we'll take courage from the words of Peter. What does he go on to write there in verse 8? He says, uh, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He was about to be devoured that night. But resist him, firm in your faith, 
knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Maybe Peter's lying there thinking, this isn't unique to me, this isn't strange. My good friend James even went through this trial, why shouldn't I? But then he says, verse 10, here's the key. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And Peter, again, is writing from personal experience. Because after he did suffer a little while under the hand of Herod in prison, he found that he was restored. He was confirmed. He was strengthened by the mighty hand of God. And he was established. Where were his feet established on that night? Not on the cold, dank floor of an Antonian prison cell but out in the open streets of Jerusalem, a free man. One who very well could sing in a way that maybe we can't even sing. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Well, we move from James' execution to Peter's escape to now Mary's prayer meeting and We want to consider what the church is doing there. We've been told in verse 5 already, and then again in verse 12, that the church is gathering to do what they're always meant to do, pray. Uh, but, But more than that, during particular times of distress and persecution... Uh, There's this impetus to pray. The church should always be praying. Yes, we should be praying without ceasing. But there are certain moments in the life of the church or, or in the world, things going on in the world, where if there's anything we are doing besides praying, there's something wrong with us. We need to repent and fall on our face before God in earnest prayer. That's what's happening here. Verse 5, earnest prayer for him is made to God by the church. This is how it always is meant to be. If our brother or sister is imprisoned, we who are free aren't really free at all because we are bound, we are chained, as it were, to this duty of intercession, of prayer. We must do this for them. Hebrews 13.3, remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. That's what the church is doing here. They didn't consider it as though they had gotten off scot-free. No, they had an obligation and a duty. Spurgeon says, as soon as Herod had put Peter into prison, the church begins to pray. Herod took care that the guards should be sufficient in number to keep good watch over his victim, but the saints of God set their watches too. For prayer was now made by the church without ceasing. And Peter is freed in direct response to that prayer. What's the first thing Peter decides to do as a free man? Imagine uh, you're in prison, you're on death row, and yet you've been, you've been released The eve of your execution, you can do whatever you want. You're a free man. Where would you go? Peter goes to church. He goes to church. He wants to tell the saints of what God has done for them in order to encourage them. Not so that they can stop praying. Oh, you can stop praying now. I've been freed. It worked. I'm rescued. No, to encourage them to pray all the more, to say, look, your prayers work. Keep on doing it. He's, He's embodying Psalm 40. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I have not restrained my lips. I have not concealed your steadfast love or your faithfulness from the congregation. He wants to tell the news to the congregation, but there's a problem, right? He can't get in the door. It's a humorous scene. You can picture it playing out. Peter's knocking at the door. Hello, hello, it's Peter. And this poor servant girl, Rhoda. Sweet, sweet Rhoda. 
she hears the knocking and she goes to the door and she hears, hi, it's Peter, it's Peter. And she, she knows the voice and she gets so excited she's got to turn back and, and tell everybody at the prayer meeting she forgets to open the door and let him in. And what happens when she gets to the prayer meeting? They begin this discussion about the condition of her, her mental health. Like, what are you talking about? You've lost your mind. It's his ghost. It, it's, a, it's his guardian angel. They get a, they're willing, consider this, friends, they are willing to consider every possible explanation about who is knocking at the door except the explanation that God had answered their prayers. They can't believe it. And all the while, while they're having this discussion and this debate, poor Rhoda saying, no, I know the voice, it's really him, and they're talking over her, Peter's still at the door knocking, let me in, right? And that would answer all of the questions. They entertained every possibility except that their prayers had been answered. And were they praying earnestly? Of course they were. Verse 5 told us as much. But I think we can pray with earnestness and we can pray with frequency and still lack one other thing, expectation. They lack that expectation that God would actually answer their prayers. What about for us? Do you pray expectantly? Do you pray expecting that God will do good and great things? That he'll give you the desires of your heart? John Newton tells us, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such none could ever ask too much. Do you ever think when you're praying... This is too much for God. Even God wouldn't answer this prayer. Likely, while the church here prayed, they silently harbored the conviction that Peter's fate was sealed. James had been killed already. Why wouldn't Herod do the same with Peter? We can similarly pray in that manner. We ask God for what we want, but secretly we convince ourselves, we determine that he would never grant it to us. But we don't know the big picture, do we? We don't know how God is going to work all of his purposes out. And so, friends, how dare we limit God in our prayers? God was not limited in this scenario. The death of James in God's mysterious providence and by his power turned out not to be a moment of defeat or despair for the church. But really, Peter's escape in light of the death of James gave the church all the more reason to have courage and boldness. That, that King Herod couldn't win out, but King Jesus would. No matter what the odds were stacked against them. And Peter's arrival to that church on that prayer meeting, that was a dose of Ephesians 3 for them, where they learned, oh, indeed, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ever ask or even dream up. Do you believe that tonight, today, friends? That God is able and willing to do more than you could ever ask or imagine and along with that, do you recognize that sometimes that will happen in a way, maybe even many times, that will happen in a way that you cannot understand, that won't make sense to you? We have to submit to the fact that God works in ways that we cannot trace out. We, we have to trust God that although some things seem grim to us, he's working out his sovereign, perfect, and good 
will. Yes, it is a good will, a good plan that God has. Like I said, we, can't, we don't know the big picture. We don't see the big picture, and yet we do see some, some lines, some, some strokes of the brush, as it were. We can trace the contours of it. We see some colors, and we have enough information from what we can see to be able to declare this big picture, although I can't see it all, there is one word I know to describe it, and it is good. It is good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things, friends, in the end, will be for our good. That's true for you today. All things. It's true for me today. It was true for James. It's true for Peter. It's true for the church and it was even true in the martyrdom of missionary John Williams. You know, his story didn't end with his death, which is often the case when God is involved. I oh, know the story goes on. There's another John that's involved, John Patton, born in 1824, about 30 years after the birth of uh, John Williams, born in Scotland. He grew up hearing the stories of this missionary, John Williams, and how he went to Tahiti and the Cook Islands. And he was inspired by him also to be a missionary. And even when he learned of this sudden, gruesome, violent death that did not deter him from wanting to follow in Williams' path, in fact, it did, the quite, it did quite the opposite. He wanted to go to that same island, the New Hebrides, Vanuatu. Uh, Patton wrote regarding William's death, Thus were the New Hebrides baptized in the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. So he was convinced, and he went. God preserved him. At times it looked like he too would die. And yet the gospel got out. And he ministered to the people of the New Hebrides until his death in 1907. Some 30 years ministering there. Today, about 90% of the population of Vanuatu identifies as Christian. In large measure, because of the ministry begun by John Patton. And it would not be too much to say that if it wasn't for that sudden, violent, and... Seemingly disheartening death of John Williams, Patton never would have gone to that island. And those people never would have been reached. Why did God permit James to die, but Peter to live? I don't know. We don't know. But let us never assume that God is not doing amazing things in our lives, just because we can't understand it. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for the witness of the early church, which can nerve us on, give us a courage and boldness in the work that we have to do today. We pray that we would submit ourselves to the ways in which you work, mysterious though they are, trusting that they are good, and since we know you work all things for good, would we come to you earnestly and expectantly, asking that you would open your hand and give us everything that we need. Give us the faith to trust that you will do that and much more besides. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.